This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our fourth Women in Leadership conversation at UC San Diego. I'm Pradeep Khosla, Chancellor of UC San Diego, and I'm truly honored to share this inspiring event with you. Women in Leadership is a candid conversation featuring a quartet of trailblazing women who lead the way and mentor others in their respective fields of journalism, activism, science, and the arts. These women have joined us to celebrate the legacy of Dr. Sally Ride, a former professor of physics here at UC San Diego and the first American woman to fly in space. Dr. Wright was an advocate for excellent and equitable education for all students. Igniting students' enthusiasm for science was her passion and her aim. We are proud to continue Dr. Wright's legacy, which includes co-founding a dynamic, hands-on youth science education program that is now administered by UC San Diego. Sally Wright Science, the program, has seen a 222% increase in enrollment over the last year. It supports students throughout our nation and countries around the globe, including Canada, Switzerland, India, Puerto Rico, Turkey, and Mexico. UC San Diego is honored to reach so many young scholars who will become change makers and innovators in academia and beyond. The women on this panel exemplify their spirit of exploration, discovery, and innovation. I thank them for sharing their stories, and I thank you for joining us. Hello, I'm Executive Vice Chancellor Elizabeth Simmons. It is a privilege to join you all at this year's Women in Leadership event in honor of a champion of diversity in STEM and America's first woman in space. This program is an opportunity to hear from trailblazing women who broke down barriers to become leaders in their fields and pave the way for a more inclusive future. Their stories and perspectives highlight the progress of women in science but they are also reminders that we have a long way to go. Some recent developments for women in space exploration help demonstrate some of the systemic challenges that women and people of color face in STEM fields. Back at the beginning of the US Space Initiative, a program was launched with the goal of proving that women were just as capable of space travel as men. And a group of female pilots known as the Mercury 13 passed the same screening tests developed for NASA's astronaut selection process. Despite their success, however, NASA refused to allow them to participate in its program and systematically blocked women from qualifying as astronaut candidates for years until its 1978 cohort selected Sally Ride. Strong, persistent female scientists have continued to push for representation and challenge longstanding gender disparities. For example, last summer at the age of 82, the youngest member of the original Mercury 13, Mary Wally Funk, was finally able to fly in space, a trip 60 years in the making. She broke John Glenn's record as the oldest person to fly to space. NASA astronaut Jessica Watkins is now making history as the first black woman on the International Space Station crew and the fifth black woman in space, docking at the station just recently this year. Women leaders are the driving force behind the United States mission to return to the moon, the Artemis program, which will put the first woman and first person of color on the moon. 
And our own Scripps Institution of Oceanography is building a reputation as a launching point for women astronauts, including this year's commencement speaker, Jessica Meir. I understand what it feels like to be one of the few or first women to do something and the effort that it takes to overcome obstacles in pursuit of your passion. There were only two women in my own undergraduate physics cohort and only three in the graduate cohort, which meant that most of the time and during most of my career as a physicist, I'm, I'm usually the only one in the room. And that means that at any time, uh, one's failures or successes are taken not as a, just a reflection on oneself, but as emblematic of what all women are capable of. And that's an extra burden to bear. So while we love to celebrate record-breaking firsts, it is worth noting that they have taken decades to achieve. They have taken a toll on those who are the pioneers and our overall progress has been slow. Much more is needed to address persistent gender disparities. UC San Diego's strength actually derives from the diversity of people and ideas here. The only way we can be sure that we aren't leaving good ideas on the table is to make sure we have as many people of different kinds of expertise and backgrounds and perspectives as possible engaged in the conversation. And the only way we can achieve our mission of access and success as a public research university is to champion social justice. So we're doing our part on campus and in our local communities by engaging leaders and majority group allies to help us proactively encourage women and members of other underrepresented groups to achieve their full potential and become leaders, visible leaders in their field. I am proud of all we've done to improve the participation of women in STEM and leadership positions across our university community. Making further progress at erasing persistent opportunity gaps requires us all to be relentlessly self-reflective and deliberately contribute to positive change. Partnering with women colleagues of distinctive backgrounds and life experiences, interests and leadership styles is an especially enjoyable part of my role as EDC. And I lean on and learn from and are grateful for these many colleagues every day. I'm also proud that UC San Diego is home to some of my personal heroes, including Sally Ride. So let me just close by expressing appreciation for our esteemed panelists for sharing their stories. I'd like to also thank everybody joining us today for doing their part in the spirit of collective impact to make UC San Diego a more welcoming and inclusive community where all students, faculty, and staff can thrive. Hello, I'm Becky Pettit, Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Thank you for joining us for our Women in Leadership event. This event honors Dr. Sally Ride, the first American woman in space and a former professor of physics here at UC San Diego. Sally captured the nation's imagination as a symbol of possibility and as an example of the ability of women to break barriers and achieve their dreams. Her legacy also includes a dedication to cultivating interest in science, technology, engineering, and math, with a focus on reaching girls. We are honored to extend her legacy through Sally Ride Science at UC San Diego, as we inspire future generations of scholars to get excited about STEM. We've made significant progress on our equity, diversity, and inclusion goals by turning our aspirational goals into concrete actions through our strategic plan for inclusive excellence. We're committed to continuing on our path to full inclusion and to greater representation of women in STEM and women in leadership. 
Today's event is further evidence of our ongoing work. We hope you are inspired by today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the program. Hello, I'm Tam O'Shaughnessy, co-founder and executive director of Sally Ride Science at UC San Diego. Over 20 years ago, Sally Ride and I, along with our friends, Terry McEntee, Alan Lopes, and Karen Flammer, started Sally Ride Science. Our goal was, and still is, to inspire young people, especially girls. We want to ignite their natural interests in science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM. How? Through captivating hands-on STEM programs and compelling stories of the women and men working in STEM today. Even before she became America's first woman in space, Sally knew that young minds are awakened by the people they admire. When Sally was a young girl, she admired aviator Amelia Earhart, pitching great Sandy Koufax, astronaut Neil Armstrong, and her high school science teacher, Dr. Elizabeth Momartz. Each in their own way inspired Sally to follow her interests and to dream big, and that's just what she did. The annual Women in Leadership event hosted by Sally Ride Science celebrates Sally's life by reflecting on the things she cared about. She was an athlete, a physicist, a space pioneer, an author, and a champion of diversity in science education and careers. And in each of these areas, Sally was a leader, just like the heroes of her youth. This year's panel brings together leaders from diverse backgrounds who share a passion for inspiring girls and women to strive and persevere. They offer insight on what it takes for women to become leaders the barriers they face, and the mindset that allows them to succeed. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another exciting adventure into the future. Uh, thanks to everyone who makes this happen, and especially to Tam for her creativity and for her input. That this event celebrates Sally Ride is a perfect starting point for so many conversations, Sally, like all of our panelists, was smart, brave, and unstoppable in her path to orbit. And then she was even more determined in her work here on Earth. Hundreds of thousands of girls and boys have benefited from the STEM activities of Sally Ride Science. Even more from the 10,000 teachers who've been trained by the SRS Academy. And while Sally was the first American woman to fly in space, Today, some 75 women from around the globe can call themselves astronauts. It is an amazing legacy. In the decades since Sally left us, she has been commemorated in a number of concrete ways, on an oceanographic research ship, on a mountain on the moon, at least two elementary schools, all very appropriate to her commitment to education and exploration. She's also remembered on a U.S. postage stamp and most recently on the U.S. quarter. True, you cannot buy much with 25 cents these days. Even a stamp costs more than twice that. But her presence on each of these national symbols moves us that much closer to full equity. When I first met Sally back when I was a correspondent for ABC News and she was one of NASA's first six women chosen to train as astronauts, all of those goals were very distant dreams, but Sally understood that having those dreams made all the difference. As she told me unequivocally during the interview that bonded our friendship, 
her selection by NASA would not have been possible, would not have even been a dream without the battles fought and the groundwork laid by what we then called the women's movement, by a generation of women and leaders who inspired and energized the next rounds of doers and leaders. And that's what we're here to do today, to help young women and men, you're invited also, to navigate today's critical challenges to our independence, to our status, even to our existence, and to suggest how women can help lead this country to a better future. We've got some super cool, super talented women to do that very thing, and let me introduce them all to you. Thanks first to Dolores Huerta. We know our mandate. Yes, we can. Si, se puede. Her mighty words that inspired so many farm workers fighting for social justice. Dolores, we're all on a first-name basis here today, folks, co-founded the United Farm Workers, the only prominent female face in a movement dominated by men. She is not only a champion of labor rights, but for people of all means seeking full participation and equity. In 2012, President Obama crowned her lifetime of awards with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Welcome, Dolores. Thank you. April Erickson is an aerospace engineer currently working at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Throughout her remarkably accomplished life, she has crashed the color barrier countless times and was the first person of color to receive the prestigious Washington Award from the Western Society of Engineers. During her years post-MIT, post-Howard University, and at NASA, April has worked on projects from the rainforest to Mars, from Earth to the great beyond. She was even featured in one of Sally Ride Science's Cool Careers STEM books, and that's important. Welcome, April. Thank you. Danielle Feinberg has a different kind of technical expertise. She is one of the magicians behind Pixar Animation Studios' remarkable films, including A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Finding Nemo, and The Incredibles. Danielle was director of photography and lighting for Oscar winners Wally, Brave, and Coco. And she served as visual effects supervisor for Turning Red, the computer animated comedy that was just released. The combination of technology and art first enticed Danielle, wait for it, when she was eight years old. Today, she pays it forward by mentoring teens and has delivered an honored TED Talk. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. What a group. I love our intergenerationality. Is that a word? If it's not, I just made it one. And we're going to get there in just a moment. But I want to start with what might seem like a very obvious question for this event, or maybe not. Why women? What do we bring to the table that men don't? Can we just do a quick opening round with your brief thoughts on this question? And Dolores, I want to start with you. Why women? Well, we as women are compassionate. Uh, We are fair. Uh, We believe in cooperation and not competition. Uh, We have an intuitive sense, I think, that uh, most men do not have. I'm not saying all men. uh, So that we really can feel when things are not right. Uh, when other people can't see that, sometimes we can't even explain it. 
but we, we do have these strong feelings. I think the one thing that we always have to get women to do, though, is to act upon those feelings, even knowing that people will criticize them because sometimes it doesn't seem very rational why we feel this way about certain things. And uh, we just have to get keep that courage to speak up and make our feelings known uh, to make sure that things go in the right direction. That's great. And, and yes, we can. We can do all those things. Uh, April, let me turn to you. What's special about women in, in, the, in the world of leadership? I think Dolores said it so well. But first of all, I'm very much into inclusivity, right? That's the buzzword, the hot buzzword, right? I think that we learned many, many years ago for me when I was a little girl that um, I wanted to involve and engage everybody. It was sort of that mothering thing or sisterhood thing that we just kind of innately, you know, embraced as young children. And my mother always taught me how to play in the sandbox. So I think that's one of the most important skills that women and um, that bring to the table. And I think we we're 50% of the population. So how could you not include us? But yeah, I think Dolores said it really well. And so did you. Statistics. I like that. 50 more than we're 51% or more. Uh, Danielle, what, what, what from your position behind the cameras and the, and the computers, what do you think? I got to see this up close very recently on Turning Red. It was the first all-female leadership team for one of our films in history. And so um, we made Turning Red during the pandemic. And so it was a crazy time. And I think having this all-women leadership, it was really clear uh, how much heart we brought to things in terms of trying to take care of people during this this very, very hard time, but also how strong we all were. And that um, what I saw time and time again was a willingness to make the difficult decisions, not doing things for show, but really understanding what the problem was and willing to make the decision to make it better for everyone. Um, and I think that, that the power of that is not to be underestimated. That's great. So so it, uh, inclusivity and statistics and heart and um, compassion, all things that women do really well, along with, of course, every other single thing that we do really well. We are great multitaskers, too, which allow us to see the big picture in a better way, I think, sometimes because we're juggling so many things. And I found that to be a skill that we all just had to do. You know, we all expected to do a lot in our daily lives and family lives. And that I bring that to the table at work as well. Cool. That's great. Um, I, I would also add in there, um, given this group, uh, that we know stuff partly because we're older um, in varying degrees and we are definitely wiser. And we have lived in a world mostly run by men. So let's share some of that lived experience uh, because the future can be very daunting when you're just a kid. Not one of you was born into what you do right now. You had to work, you had to fight, uh, or you had to dream big, or all of those things to get there. So what did you face to get where you are? What obstacles did you overcome? And who are some of your mentors or, or role models? Dolores, I want to start with you again. And and. And feel free to either start at the very beginning or back in the 60s with all that male chauvinism out, out in the farm workers. Would start anywhere you want, but how did you get there? What did you face? Well, I was very fortunate because my mother gave me the directions that I needed, I think, in terms of uh, don't be afraid to be different. And if people criticize you for what you're doing, as long as your heart is in the right place and you're trying to help people, uh, just ignore the criticisms. 
Uh, my Girl Scout leader, I was a Girl Scout for 10 years of my life. Uh, she was also very, very helpful uh, in terms of uh, making me understand how important it was about nature. Uh, also, again, uh, cooperating with a fellow Girl Scout. Girl Scout. But then I did have a man in my life, a man named Fred Ross Sr., and you probably never heard of him because he's such a great organizer, but he was my mentor, uh, Cesar Chavez's mentor. He's the one that taught us grassroots organizing. Which, when I, and when I say this, uh, women engage in this process of organizing that uh, we used to start uh, the Community Service Organization, which preceded the United Farm Workers, and my organization, the Dolores Huerta Foundation. It's called house meetings, and we can translate that into Tupperware parties. <laughs> you know, the idea of meeting with people in their homes and getting them to commit, but instead of uh, committing them to buy Tupperware, you commit them to become activists and uh, to engage in voting and civic action. Talk a little bit, Dolores, um, about your time on the line back during the farm workers organiz- organizing. You were not only fighting the government and the farm owners, you were fighting to some extent, the men who were organizing with you and the men in the fields. What what was that like? Well, um, yeah, organizing the farm workers wasn't that bad because they knew that I was sincere, that I wasn't trying to take advantage of anybody. Uh, but when you come among the uh, my peer uh, uh, leaders of the farm workers union, that's where, you, you might say, uh, the rub comes in because uh, just uh, uh, trying to make them understand that um, there's a woman leader uh, that you can always take credit for the work that you do instead of having them take credit for the work. You take take credit away from us for what we do. And I had to really stand up to them. I'm, I'm very shocked to hear that a man wanted to take credit for the work that you did. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but also to expand uh, the role of women in the farmworker movement. Uh, that was one thing that we needed to do because we had a lot of women on the front lines, uh, women that went to jail, that were picketing out there doing the hard work. But when it came to the decision-making, you know, women do all the work, but then they don't get to make the decisions, right? And that's where the pipe came in. And eventually, I think... Uh, before Cesar Chavez passed away, we had about a third of our organization, the leadership were women. I'm talking uh, the executive board. But I do, do, do want to announce that today uh, the president of the United Farm Workers is a woman. Her name is Teresa Romero. And uh, the majority of the women on the board of the United Farm Workers are women. They have the majority now today. Danielle, let me move to you now. Um, age eight. Uh, what did your parents have to say about a little girl who was intrigued with computers, or was it the art part of it? Which which got you first, and what did you face in in getting to where you are now? You know, it's probably both because my, my I come from a pretty artistic family, so we just kind of did art that just was happening all the time. Um, and I think my first time I touched a computer, the programming made pictures, and and I think to this day I still find it to be complete magic that you can write some words and some numbers and what comes out of it is art. I, that translation is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so I got interested in it early enough that when I sort of started getting the message that computers or math or science were for boys, I kind of wasn't accepting that at that point. Like I got really good exposure early on. So I was like, ah, whatever, I'm doing this. Um, but you know, I landed in college and to study computer science and it was, maybe 10% women in the room. And, um, you know, we all know this, but 
it's sort of the thing you walk in the room and you already feel like you don't belong. And anything that doesn't go perfectly just sort of serves to underscore that. And so it, it ended up being a lot to kind of battle through um, just to kind of follow something that you love and enjoy and are interested in. Um, I think the other dynamic that was really hard back then, I think uh, my understanding is it's better now when I've gone back to visit, but um, the guys would gang up on the the projects and figure out all the kind of like hidden twists and turns in there. And I was off in the corner and another girl was off in that corner and the girls weren't that nice to each other. And so I make a real effort in anything where it's, there's a few women to try and band together and like get community going. And I think that's really improved, but um, it was hard. You know, I, I was also lucky two out of my three first um, people that taught me about computers were women. So I think that probably served me quite well. And in terms of like uh, other things that helped me persevere was I had a couple male professors in college that really treated me like I belonged there, even on the days that I didn't feel like I belonged there. And that um, I think advocacy from men actually can be hugely, hugely powerful. Fascinating. Um, I'm very interested in what you said about the other girls not not wanting to let another girl into the club. How, how do you get? How did you get by that? Because that can happen, or it used to happen. I don't know if it still does. I think it's much better now. As from going around to schools, it's they have um, all these STEM groups, women in computer science, and they seem to be much more collaborative. Um, but that was almost harder. I think is like you. You're my people but somehow this is we're not helping each other and that's that is sort of the the final piece of feeling very lonely and a very difficult like computer science is not an easy major by any means you know and so um and so now it really does mean that I go out of my way to try and create community especially in the rooms where there's fewer women um, and and take us to Hollywood. Take us to Pixar. I know you're in Northern California, but it's still Hollywood to us. <laughs> um, not known to be great to women, either in front of or behind the camera. What did you face there and how did you get by it? I, I'm very lucky, I think, that I'm not in Hollywood because the you know, Pixar's in the San Francisco area. It's a very liberal, accepting place. You can be as weird as you want. People don't bat an eye. And I think a lot of that culture threads its way through Pixar. And so it's a really lovely people here that are very supportive in the majority. That isn't to say like that I wasn't in, you know, the only woman in the room a lot. Um, and but I think by that time I was sort of used to it and there was not a lot of overt sexism going on. There was plenty of micro stuff for pe things that people just don't even unconscious bias kind of stuff. But you know, I think that I found what I loved and then um, I just always persevered. There was um, definitely each time I moved up figuring out how to find my voice um, in a sort of more intimidating room. Um, but that that's all part of the journey. You were lucky in a way that um, there were people there to help you to lift a, to help lift you up and get and get you beyond some of that stuff. For sure. Um, April, I saw you nodding your head at a number of things that Danielle was saying. Um, I also want to make the point that you were born in Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York, which is not known for producing a lot of aerospace engineers. How'd you get there? Um, so, yes, you're right. Uh, I'd actually say that about Washington, D.C. as well, because I'm probably one of the few I've been very often called a unicorn, right? And... Uh, I was actually nodding from both Dolores and um, 
the, the discussions that was going on with all three of you. There's so many similarities in the things that we experience as women and particularly for being in the tech field. I also try to encourage many young people and I reflect back on my mom who was definitely the powerhouse in my life. She was this person who didn't have a problem jumping on a ladder and screwing something into the ceiling, which may seem like a really easy task, but probably in the sixties when I'm growing up, that's just not what women typically did, right? They were supposed to be in the kitchen. And my mom had this attitude that you can do whatever you want. You just need to just do it, you know. So and she was always going to be that leading, you know, force in front of me or behind me. Um, I reflect on when she took me to uh, the kindergarten, well, pre-kindergarten at an early age, because she was like, kid, I got to get you out the house. You need real training. Right. (laughs) And so I was a little ahead of my age group. And she had me standing in the hallway. She came out with this administrator and she said, tell them your name, tell them your address, tell them your telephone number. And I just rattled it off. And I guess it encouraged them that this kid at least has a memory and is smart enough to answer questions. And so she got me into school early and then she had me and and my sister were bused to school in a more affluent neighborhood in Brooklyn. And that was really, I think, a great step for us in terms of us excelling, me and my sister excelling academically. Uh, I started, too, having the vision of what I might do at the age of six. I was in first grade in school and, again, being in an affluent neighborhood, a parent brought a TV to school so we could watch men go to the moon. The interesting thing when I reflect was that as an African-American young girl, I didn't have any issues with white men being astronauts. However, I thought they were old. (laughs) So I remember (laughs) the other students, we sat there and calculated like, how old would we be? And when would that happen that we would be the similar age as the astronauts? Wait a minute, wait a minute, and I'm going to interrupt. You're telling me that as a kid, you saw white men going to the moon and it never occurred to you that being white and male was the was the thing you had to be. You just had to be old. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I think it's because I learned very early to sort of assimilate with other cultures and other people because I was bused to school at such an early age. And... I learned to uh, speak the slang, you know, um, when I was back in the projects in Brooklyn, but also how to be the right, you know, perfect kid and be respectful of my elders and listen and learn. I excelled really quickly. I was the teacher's helper. Um, I, I just, you know, it was a good thing. My mom taught us right. I also remember as a little girl going to something called the Bluebells. I was also a Girl Scout. But the Bluebells was a similar type of organization. And my mom was the the uh, leader for that group. And we were little. We were three and four years old. And the girls were probably preteens or teenagers. But my mother was just this force to be reckoned with. And she's she just said, you know, my children aren't going to be slighted. They're going to have everything that, you know, we can get in terms of a good education Um, We lacked on some of the extracurriculars just because we couldn't always afford it. But the education portion was the 
definitely the thing. And I and I and let me just say that my mother made sure that I got to work out with the boys on the basketball team. Now, however, I had to sit and watch them. They let me at least in the gym because my mother said she's going to be offered. You don't have a girls team in elementary school. And so I at least sat in the gym and watched. <laughs> oh, boy. And and I want to get to your the sports part of it a little bit later. But what here's what I am taking from what every one of you has said. And it is choose your parents wisely. <laughs> you all had moms who and dads who essentially said, you can do it. And by the way, so did I. And and what an extraordinary thing that is to realize when we talk about um, how to get little girls moving on up. Um, I want to move on to um, what's going on in the outside world a little bit for just a moment. The outside world has gotten a lot more complicated today uh, with even more challenges for women. Um, start with COVID, end with COVID. We all wish it were over to the extent it is. According to the Harvard Business Review, and I quote, the pandemic's negative impact on women in the workforce will not be reversed for a very long time, end quote. And it's not just the loss of female workers at a rate way higher than for men. It's the loss of female leaders. Um, And that translates, as you all mentioned at the very top, into a lack, a loss of wisdom, of compassion and humanity on the job. The women who have been there to do that, and we've made such gains in the last 10, 15 years, and a lot of that is gone right now. So I haven't even mentioned the stress on stay-at-home moms during COVID, which is another piece of the pie for women. The question is, how do we fix it? How do women recover the ground that they, we have lost during COVID? Do we need to start from square one? Anybody seeing this at the workspace. April, what about you? Are you seeing any results of COVID? So I'm going to just say, personally reflect that I'm actually really at that sort of pinnacle part where I either leap to the next level or I kind of just chill at my level. And I'm really happy in my job and the role that I play. I do so much more than the title new business lead for instrument systems and technology division. I really do a lot with um, educational outreach and teaching and leading teams um, externally to my job. But I've, as people say, hey, you're you're ready. We want you to to apply for these higher levels and headhunters call me. I go, hmm, what is it about quality of life? Do I really want to take on these extra new roles and the next level of leadership? I do realize there is somewhat of a void there, there aren't many people like me with all the skills that I have. So it's really um, tugging at my heart right now, trying to figure out if I want to go ahead and take that next leadership role, or do I want to continue to help the people that I know I serve really well, because I also afraid there's a void coming from behind to not fill that void either. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a very much of a challenge to think about. I, I can't say what I've seen um, across at the higher levels, but I do know that I have lost some very valuable mentors and a a few that have passed from COVID. So there is definitely that impact. I feel so fortunate that my daughter was in middle school and not in elementary school because it was really challenging on people that have the younger children in their household. 
uh, Danielle, are you seeing it um, at Pixar? Are you seeing it? You have you have children. You have two daughters. Is that right? I have a son and a daughter, two year old twins that were born a couple months before we all went home for pandemic. So you've been dealing with this firsthand. Yeah. And I, I took the promotion that April's hanging out on. Um, <laughs> so I was in a new role on the movie while all this was going on. So not in my comfy place where I had been for 14 years directing the lighting, but in this new role. So, um, you know, it's interesting here as, as you're talking, I'm picturing the people that have left and it is the majority here somehow is men, um, which actually is going to create opportunities for women to move up, I think. Um, which is really cool. I th- the thing I am, the thing that I have seen happen was because the world was falling apart and there was um, a lot of people having childcare issues, the people that were in leadership roles actually had to do more than the job that they normally had to do because they were picking up for people on their team that maybe were taking care of parents or children. Um, they maybe had their own children that they were trying to manage and they were there was a lot of the pressure was put on them to help get through. And those people I can see are questioning whether they want to do it again. So we may actually lose people who have gotten to this level and they're like, I can't, this is, there is no balance here. I have to go back down. Um, yeah. Work, work-life balance is a, a phrase I, that we, you know, we're, we, that should have been inserted into this conversation a little bit earlier. Exactly. But it like spun out of control during pandemic. In so, this you, way. so you've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, you're saying there may be opportunities yeah. for advancement for women given, given the um, uh, attrition because of COVID. Interesting. And Dolores, let me turn to you about a related subject, sort of, which is the new push for unionization at Amazon, at Starbucks, uh, and so many other places. I saw a picture of you. I think it was on Twitter the other day with I think it was the fellow from Starbucks who is who is running that operation. You were referred to as the OG, which is a a term of great praise in in the Twitterverse. What do you see going on with those unions and with the people? And and is it is it women? Is it men? Or is there some equity there? Uh, I want to dial back just for a moment and make a comment on uh, my previous panelists' uh, comments. Okay, sure. Number one, I think that when you have a crisis like we have had with COVID-19, in all the national emergencies that that we have is that women step in to fill the roles. Uh, Mm -hmm. In my organization, because we do grassroots community organizing, uh, we have seen the women that have stepped in uh, in terms of uh, doing the COVID-19 work, doing like with my organization, uh, we have vaccinated over 8,000 people. Uh, We have uh, vaccine clinics every weekend that we move around to the rural areas of the Central Valley of California. And we have seen uh, women stepping in to help us with the food banks, to help uh, getting food for the homeless. And so there have been many opportunities for women to grow their leadership uh, in this time of COVID-19. And so I have seen it more. I have seen more women that have stepped into leadership roles uh, just to fill the emergencies. Uh, I have a daughter who's a nurse also. And, uh, you know, she has... Which she has done, although she was an oncology nurse, she's now become a traveling nurse uh, just to be able to go to places where they need uh, nurses. And I think that has really uh, upgraded her in terms of her leadership uh, to have that courage to leave her beautiful home and to travel uh, wherever people are needed. And mm-hmm. so I, th- I think that that has been uh, really um, 
I think women are always ready to step in and fill the needs. And I think the same thing is going to happen with education, which is such a crucial part of our society that women are going to be stepping in again uh, to fix what's wrong with our educational system, which we know there are many, many layers uh, that need to be fixed, you know, not only the curriculums, but the processes and the way that we teach people, etc. And then I want to go back uh, to something that April said, which I think is really, really important. I was very fortunate, like April, uh, to go up, uh, not in a wealthy area, in a working class, but there was, I, I got my ethnic studies for my friends because so many of my friends were their families were immigrants from Italy from Greece from the Philippines from Japan from China my next door neighbors were African Americans my best girlfriend that I met at eight years old in Girl Scouts is Charles Satterfield who was my comadre uh, my African American buddy and that that filled my life and I, I just wish that everybody had that experience because I'm people like Donald Trump, for instance, that never had a chance to really, uh, you know, be with people of color and understand them. Because I think that really is a way that we erase the ignorance that we, that we have in our society that is causing so much harm. Uh, because we know that racism comes from slavery and uh, in the way that women are treated, the way people of color are treated, the way our children are, are treated. And then this, of course, leads to your question about, about labor organizations. Because, again, the fact that people should have to give their energy and their life to make other people rich is something that has to be disposed of. And labor unions, are, of course, is one of the ways uh, that we can, uh, you know, make uh, create the middle class, make sure that people get better wages, better better uh, benefits at their work, but also uh, make sure that we have a democratic society because if the working people of our country cannot have their own organizations, then this is bad because other segments of society, the professionals, the doctors, the lawyers, uh, the employers, you know, they all have their organizations. Working people only have one one organization (laughs) and that is their union to represent them on the job site, to represent them in the community, to represent them in Congress and in our state legislatures. So labor unions are a very important part of our society. Uh, We want to have a democracy. Labor unions are absolutely crucial. And to see all of these young people, uh, like Chris uh, Samuel, that came up there, the main organizer of of the, uh, um, Smalls, I think is his last name, Chris Small, that that they're organizing at all levels. I think that is saying, yay, that's, really helps our democracy, which we know right now is at a great risk in our society. And and that's the good news. And by the way, that picture of you with him is so wonderful. Chris Small is about 11 feet tall, as far as I can tell, and you're you're not. Uh, but you are clearly the, um, the queen of that photograph. So very exciting. Uh, that's the good news. There's obviously also a lot of bad news out there. Let's start with war. Talk about Ukraine. Um, So many victims here, uh, lives, cities, truth. But I want to focus on one of the ugliest and the most predictable, and that's the weaponization of women, uh, the sexual violence, the tactics of terror, rape, trafficking. We are supposed to be living in a time of progress. I wonder if any of you has figured out not how to deal with this, because I don't know that any one of us can figure out how to deal with it, but must we accept this as inevitable? Uh, the world hasn't changed in in uh, hundreds of thousands of years. That's that's a bit of a uh, an overstatement. But um, this has been going on for an awful long time, and to see it going on before our very eyes and before our cameras today is terrifying. What? Where do we go? April, have you thought about it? Have you 
have you any any wisdom to share with us on how young people in particular are meant to look at this and think about it? So it affected me, meaning military or war, the choices that I made with what I worked on very early in my life. When I was graduating from MIT, that was the year of the first shuttle disaster, and the jobs that were available at that time were not the NASA-based job that I hoped for, dreamed for, wanted to work on human exploration. The jobs were really about um, Ronald Reagan's great idea of strategic defense, which meant you know, either shooting down missiles or creating missiles uh, for some other use. And I made that choice very, very early that that was not the job that the jobs that I wanted to take. I decided I didn't want to work um, really on DLD. I do believe that protection is important, but I definitely made a conscious choice to not be destructive. And so I've lived my life always that way. I tell that story often because it actually was what pushed me to grad school. I wanted to be able to make choices about what I worked on. And I knew that if I did higher level degrees, then I would be more likely to be able to make the choices about the projects I worked on or proposed projects for future innovation and technology. So now that I fast forward, it is very hurtful and saddened. I'm very saddened by the prospect of what I see with the current war. I'm very concerned about how it could escalate. Uh, I think that I don't see many women negotiators, unfortunately. Um, I think that there would be a bit more compassion for what is going on if we did have women involved with the negotiations or providing the leadership of the current um, combating nations. So I'm not sure how we stop it, but you know what? Everyone has a mother. And I think that mothers have to have to play a role in some of the decisions of who is going out to to fight this war. And perhaps we can provide leverage in that manner. Lots of people have wives and I know that wives have some control over their husbands, although sometimes it doesn't seem that we do. But we do have the ability to make decisions about where we spend money. So the economic dollar also plays a very important role and women have that power uh, we spend, we typically spend more money in the household on the things that our families need. And there there might be some leverage in that way as well. Uh, I, I, I need to jump on something you said, which is we need more women negotiators. Um, and I want to just insert here, much as we all champion women's rights and women's leadership, uh, that as a gender, we are not uniformly pacifists. We are not uniformly truth tellers. We are not uniformly um, on what some of us would consider the right side, the correct side. Um, we've certainly seen it in the disinformation war that is going on in this country right now. We've seen it in our, um, in our continuing struggle for reproductive rights and the erosion of that right now. Not all women are on the same side. We do not vote as a gender for the most part. Um, Dolores, have you thought about that? Have you have you got a, a way for us to look at that and to think about that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I just want to say about the culture wars, you know, they've declared war on women over and over again. Under the Bush administration, there was a war against women. 
Well, women fought back, and we got more women elected to the Congress, okay? And now we have a woman vice president. Uh, uh, we have a, a Supreme Court justice that is a black woman. We have a California Supreme Court, Supreme Court justice that is a Latina woman. And, you know, yeah, they can declare war on us, but you know what? We know how to win, okay? We know how to win those cultural wars. And one of the things that I always use as a mother of 11 children, when we talk about abortion, I, re- I remind them of a great Mexican president named Benito Juarez, and after they got the independence from Spain. And he had a saying that says, respecting other people's rights is peace. Respecting other people's rights is peace. How many children you want to have or don't have, that is your human right. Whom you fall in love with, who you want to marry, that is your human right. If that's somebody of your own sex, that is your human right. And I know that a lot of women, uh, because of their religion, uh, they vote the wrong way. You know, they're voting for people that are either for or against abortion. Well, we have to say to them, you know what, you're voting against yourself when you do that. Uh, because when we think of what the Biden administration wanted to bring us uh, universal child care, uh, two years of community college, you know, uh, more money for health care, et cetera, et cetera. So we can win these wars. But what we have to do is we have to get out there and do the messaging and do the organizing. When I speak to, speak to Latina women, who are fixed on this idea, I've got to vote for so-and-so because they are uh, pro-life, then I explain to them, no, you're voting against your own self-interest, you know. What you do with your body is your right, and every woman has that right. So we are in a very critical, critical moment right now in terms of women's reproductive rights. And, of course, what I want to throw in there in passing the Equal Rights Amendment, which we know is stuck in the Senate. And we get the Equal Rights Amendment passed, that's going to take care of a lot of issues. And it comes down, of course, of getting women to engage, getting women to vote. Uh, but we, we can win this war. And in terms of, of the violence that we exist right now, that exists right now, and wars, I want to quote Coretta Scott King. Coretta Scott King said, we will never have peace in the world until women take power. And so that is our mandate, that we have to make sure that we get more women in power, more women in Congress, more women in the Senate. So they're the ones that are going to make the laws that are going to help us pass the Equal Rights Amendment and help us get more women into power. But it's not just women, is it, Dolores? It's what we've obviously learned is that there are many women who vote against what some of us would consider basic women's rights. Well, I, I, I use the word feminist uh, because feminist also includes men that support women. You know, so uh, I, and I say to Coretta, with her permission, that I have changed that slogan to say uh, we will never have peace in the world until feminists take power. And also, we have to work very hard wherever there is any kind of a boardroom where people are meeting and decisions are being made, 50% of the people in that boardroom have to be feminists, okay? That's how we get there. But it's down to the bottom. We've got to vote. We've got to engage people. We have to organize and make women understand that they have the power to change things. I like your way of thinking. Um, April, let me turn to you and, and, and shift the, the subject very slightly, which is, Um, much of what we're seeing and all the disinformation is also disinformation about science. There is a real trend to not believing, believing is even the wrong word, but not trusting science, not appreciating science, not knowing science. How do you as a, as a, as a half, I'll give you a half scientist, you're a half artist, half scientist, or um, uh, whatever, whatever side you want to be on. How do you deal with the science thing? And then, uh, Danielle, I want to hear from you as well with with the, the the technology aspect. But, April, I'll start with you. 
Wow, it's it's really about educating people. So Danielle's side of the world, which actually is about media and not just about the film industry, but there are often messages that I love. I love the Pixar movies, by the way. I just love them. Um, when I think of movies like the Lomax, for one, um, that had a message about taking care of our environment, which was huge. Um, I, I, Coming from a, a community of color, it was always very upsetting to me that many people weren't engaged in, you know, recycling. And what ha what I've seen, though, is by using education in the schools, having children recycle there begins to change and sweep through the families, right? Because you have children who are now doing it in school every day, and then they follow suit at home. So that was the first part, just educating people of the importance of taking care of our environment. But then the, the negativity that spread as if we can't see around us all of the effects that are happening to us environmentally. I mean, when you see a bleached coral reef, you know that something's happened. And when we begin to show the science and the data behind it, the way that people will write it off as, you know, sort of an untruth is just, it's flabbergasting to me because I, it's not rocket science. Even so, though so how do you... How do you combat that? Uh, Danielle, how do you combat that sort of thing? <laughs> um, well, I'll just say from my position, the thing that I have found that I have any influence on is when something shows up on a screen, whether it's a big screen or a small screen, it has enormous power to change what's happening and, um, and to normalize things and have it just be sort of internalized that it's a part of the culture. Um, and we haven't made a lot of movies about science concepts, but um, but I do think that there's a huge amount of power in sort of, I mean, we've seen the power in the bad way in the media, but um, that um, is the thing that I have seen things change um, culture and what's believed and accepted the fastest. You're also doing something besides using technology. You're telling stories and stories are what, keep us going and stories are what make our dreams um, and stories may be ultimately um, what, what make us help us to succeed. Um, I used to say when we finally got women, more women in the newsroom, we finally got stories about uh, child abuse, about domestic, about spouse abuse, about all sorts of things that men were either not interested in or didn't know about, but, but it made a huge difference to have more women um, uh, in the newsroom, both in front of and behind the cameras. So um, why do we need women telling stories? How does society benefit? You, you've touched on it, and, and April has too, on seeing things that, that, that change your point of view. How do the stories that you tell and uh, change things, and how can women become good storytellers? You know, I think it goes back to the very first thing we're talking about is why women. And if you have a female director, it's their story. They're telling the story and they're putting their spin on it. And you are going to feel a different thing from that. And some part of it is they, especially here, the directors are, that's their stories they're telling. They come up with their own stories. These are not scripts that come in from the outside. So it's something very personal to them that they are putting up on the screen. And you're going to feel that, that it's coming from a different person. The same way that a man or woman of color um, is telling a story in a different way because th this is the beautiful thing about having all different kinds of people and diversity is that you get to hear all these different kinds of stories and you get to understand the, 
this sort of human experience in different ways. And like, I don't know, what if we could only listen to one song the rest of our lives? How boring. Like, that's so boring. Like, we need this. It's, it's, it's what makes life beautiful. Um, it, it's funny when you talk about it's exactly what Dolores was saying about having grown up with a, a very diverse culture. Um, she learned so much more and you're talking about it in terms of, of uh, storytelling. One more thing for you here um, while we're on the subject of, of making movies, Danielle, American schools and colleges are going through a very scary cutback in humanities courses right now. Um, you're not only the tech person, you're the arts person and you you have blended them together. How do, how do we combat that? Do women have a role in this or in general? What, what do we do about this? The one thing that sort of gives me hope there is how much versus uh, when I was growing up, how much you can actually get access to just if you can get to an internet connection of the amount of resources there are, um, apps you can download for free on a phone or um, sitting at a computer uh, where you can actually engage in art classes or um, different programs that would have been out of reach even 10 years ago, like some kid is not going to be able to get Photoshop or something. And now there's enough out there that you can really learn a lot of things on your own. That doesn't mean you have the time or that you aren't like in a living situation where that's possible. Um, But I think, I don't know, like my parents were a huge factor for me and just always had us doing things like art. And so if it would have been awful if I hadn't had that in school. I think that that is a really necessary break for kids in school too, that allows them to dive deep on a, you know, all the other classes and then go to a different side of the brain in an art class or a music class or the same way we need recess to run around and, and get those things out. So, so what, um, so what do you say to a little girl who says, I want to take an art class and they've just cut the art class from my school? Uh, to me, it's, I, I, did it outside of school. Um, and so it's, um, find another way, find another way. Yeah. If it's something you love, it's, I mean, that's the thing for all of life. It's something you love. You have to find a way. Yeah. You're bringing it back to, I think something, well, two issues. Okay. Education is so, so important. And when they talk about some part of the cultural awards is to deny young people, you know, uh, to learn, to learn everything that they need to know about racism, about sexism, about misogyny, about homophobia. And, and this is so important. And there's people that are trying to uh, deny that of children, even though public schools are paid for by taxpayers. If people don't want their children uh, to get a, 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 an education that is a, uh, you might say, a well-rounded, then they should put their, take the kids out and put them in a private school. You don't put them in, into those Christ, Christian schools or whatever. But well, this is a big fight that we have in front of us right now, is uh, to keep people ignorant in our society, because that's the only way the greedy and the powerful can, re- can retain their power. And so we've got to uh, come back and we've got to say to women, you've got to take over those school boards. You've got to, we've got to take over the educational system so that we can include all of these things that we're talking about. Science, you know, science and civics and uh, learning the real history uh, of our country. You know, letting people know that we are one human race, homo sapiens, that we don't, we have a lot of ethnic groups, but only one human race. And then no reason for us to hate each other because of the different color of our skin. Uh, this is so, so imperative that we fight for education right now. Uh, Delano Roosevelt, our president, he said, 
And when they were trying to take money out of the uh, educational system and the libraries to pay for World War II, he said, we will not take one dime out of our educational system. You know, this is the soul of our country. So we are literally fighting for the soul of our country right now. And and at the basis of all of this is we've got to really engage people in voting. Women, we are the majority, as we said before, but if they don't vote and we don't vote and we don't get the right people elected, then we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to cure any of these things that we're talking about, including global warming. You know, including global warming. Our organization, we are sponsoring bills in the state legislature of California to electrify California, make it possible for everybody to buy an electric car and have charging stations everywhere. So these are these are the critical issues, as you mentioned before, Lynn, that we have to fight right now. And we as women have got to be in the in the front of the of the battle right now. We've got to be in the trenches uh, to fight and to organize so we can stop all of these terrible things from happening. You know, there there's so much optimism in um, things like um, the confirmation of Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who who famously said segregation to SCOTUS in one generation, uh, which is which is a lot faster than it's taken a lot of other uh, people, men and women together. Um, April, I wonder if if you if you think I'm sure you think about I wonder what advice you have for children of color. Um, uh, is the pathway, do you think, open for them now? Uh, what do they have to focus on? And even more importantly, what do those of us in the rest of society have to focus on? So I want to tie back to the conversation we were having about arts, first of all, because I, I don't just talk about STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math or medicine. Um, I talk about STEAM a lot. And I've had the opportunity to speak in other countries as well who have budding programs and trying to feel how they they integrate that art. Some people from the tech side keep saying, no, it's for architecture. And I'm like, no, it's for arts. And it's inclusive in the... And so what I tell all children um, is to be well-rounded. I say why that's so important. I, I think that... We've already heard one person say the left half and the right half, they need to work together. So just like the same thing with our genders, we need to work together. But there's just a well-roundedness that I say that I learned from being artistic as a young person as well. Similar, I had parents who liked to sketch and draw. And so I always wanted to sketch and draw just as much as they, but I found that to be really helpful when I started to think of how things fit together. How do I put all the stuff I want into a spacecraft bus and into an instrument. How do I repackage it? Um, how did I package my trunk when I needed to take my sister to her first medical uh, summer program, right? There are just so many aspects that we learn how to solve problems when we're well-rounded from different aspects. And I think that we need to expose all children to, to consider these, uh, these other careers and then to bring them together. It's very important for us to be cross-disciplinary. And so I say to any child um, that as you begin to think about what you want to do in your career, and I hope often that it's a technical-based career, but there are still needs for uh, people in the professions that we're currently talking about in a place like NASA. Like, we need people to tell our story. You know, I've always heard history, which has that HIS, but her story is just important. And why not all stories be just important? And so it's very important to have filmmakers like my colleague here to be able to speak 
um, and tell our story in a way that is engaging and informative that inspires the next generation. So I always uh, point students to great um, pieces of work that allow, because, you know, our children right now are very, very visual. They're all on TikTok, right? The, um, I watched my daughter who took a very long time to start drawing, and now she's suddenly all into I'm like, oh, okay, she is my kid. <laughs> um, but she's doing it electronically on her phone as well as now on a sketch pad. And I'm like, okay, good. I'm starting to see that side. But by the way, we, we were crafting things and doing things at home, but also I would take her to the, few mu- the free museums in our city and let her in- get engaged with um, those activities and STEM activities. But being able to create with your hands, which I often think starts in the artistic world, is really important for someone in the STEM discipline as well. And that is critical. I agree with you. But I want to bring you back. I want to bring you back to the other point, because you have made um, being a first look easy uh, in, in terms of being a first black whatever. I know it hasn't been easy. What do you say to these kids today, both the, the ones who are children of color and not? What What's What's the advice? Wow. So <laughs> taking me back. So I've told students many times to not be fearful of being different. That is, that is actually the uniqueness that each one of us bring to the table is so important. I believe Danielle already talked about, you know, that she was one or two. I was the same way. I, it started very early that I was the one or two in a meeting, the one or two in a classroom. And it was having the confidence in myself to, to realize that it was okay to be different. I was the only one on the field. I was, I mean, so many places. And my mother, again, was that force behind me that said, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's okay as long as you keep your grades up. <laughs> and yeah. so I made sure to always keep those grades up, but to try new things. I, I even tell my daughter, you know, try new foods. Try, try just exposure. My, I look at the friends that she has, which are so diverse, and they all bring something to the table. And I do that in the same way with my robotics teams. Like each person has a strength. I talk about it at my job. I talk about it at universities. I talk on the National Academies boards, MIT boards. Like how important it is for us to be different. If we all solve the problem the same way, we'd never have any innovation. And I often use my, I have a little saying that, um, when diversity when when diversity um occurs innovation explodes i mean it's the opportunity for things to to be solved very differently and so it's really about the confidence a confidence and willingness to do something different try something different and to make a difference in our world and that's what i tell all kids young old <laughs> i say from uh, k to gray I think we all have to be willing to embrace our unique things that we bring in the the experiences we've had because we can solve things like putting the James Webb Space Telescope in space or the International Space Station or traveling to the depths of the ocean. I, I really think that that's the only way we move forward. It was so wonderful to see how different countries came together to solve the problem of COVID. 
we all had to bind together um, to be, you know, humans and solve this terrible, terrible disease that was attacking our, our bodies. The EU, the European nations, suddenly, you know, United Nations pulling together right. to solve a problem of war. You know, we all suffer with war. So, yes. Well, and, and on that, let me just go back to Dolores for a minute. Dolores, you're, I quoted at the beginning your, your wonderful, um, yes, we can, si se puede. In view of this world that we're in, where there are so many awful things happening, um, it's such a bitterly divided world. How can people who are seeking equity and working together, how can people still have that kind of optimism? Well, I think we have to look back and see the progress that we've made. You know, I just turned 92 years old on April 10th. And uh, I remember when I went to college, there were only like a handful of us that were Latinos. And now we can look around us and uh, see uh, how many uh, Hispanic uh, serving institutions we have that have over maybe 50% of the population of Latinos. We still haven't caught up when it comes to our African-American population, unfortunately, because uh, even in California, we're a very blue state. But if we look at all of our state colleges, our African-American population is very small. And so there's many areas that we have to step up. But, uh, but I do also like the, that the fact that reparations are being talked about and, and thinking about how reparations that can be made uh, for some of the sins of the past. So we have made a lot of progress. Women, as we know, are now uh, over half of the populations and more of the colleges. We have more women, again, engineers, uh, teachers, doctors, etc. So we have to look back and and not get pessimistic. The main thing that we have to understand is that these are challenges that we have. And we as women, uh, we are up to it. We are, we're up to the task. And we uh, this is the place where we can show our leadership. As an organizer, I always like to say things have to get really, really bad for people to really get, uh, for people to get involved, you know, so, and that the issue of, well, the issue of sexism, it was under the table for a long time, but once it came up, women of March and women have made the difference, right, in terms of getting rid of some of the things that we, they were taken for granted when I was a young woman. I mean, you know, you expected a guy to make a pass at you. You expected your employer to sexually harass you. You know, I remember having to run around a desk to keep this boss, you know, every single day trying to figure out a way, how am I, am I going to get out of this office without, without this guy sexually harassing me? So we have made a lot of progress. We just have to remember that. And, uh, and uh, we know that we, but again, it comes back to voting. I, could, I have to beat that drum over and over again, because especially young people, and please, and please don't stop beating that drum. Yeah, because I think I, I marched and I protested and I'm done. I said, no, 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 you've got to, that march has to go to the ballot box because if we don't go to the ballot box, we don't win. And that's the main thing that young people have to learn unless we can pass a law that can be implemented and can be enforced and people can be held accountable. We haven't won yet. So uh, I am very optimistic, actually. Uh, these things that we we had to put up with are now out in the open. We can address them, we can talk about them, and then we can solve them. What about the roles of men? We've talked a little bit about that. Uh, fathers, brothers, bosses, sons. Um, Danielle, you, you talked about having some good mentors, uh, male mentors at your shop. Um, what advice... What advice do you have for a little boy? Um, <clears throat> you know, I think for me, one of the smallest but most powerful things that 
has happened in a room. So an everyday kind of thing is when uh, some guy says, oh, hold on, I, I, I wanted to hear what she had to say. Or Danielle, did you have something to say and stop the conversation? Um, because it's this very clear signal as to like, sh what she has to say has as much value as you and <laughs> shut up so she can say it. Um, and so there's these, you know, that's not a hard thing to do. That's the little opportunities to make sure that you're sort of... Do you think, I'm just thinking of something I haven't thought about before. I mean, except in other contexts. Are little boys not taught to let little girls speak, do you think? Do you think they, well, you've got, you know, your children are a little young to figure out whether that, uh, to do a at-home experiment. Dolores, you've got sons and... We, I mean, we've all seen lots of boys around, and I have I have three grown stepsons. Um, I think they're actually not taught to be to be um, more respectful of women speaking when they're children. I think there's a I think there's a little bit of that. I mean, don't we need to tell little boys how to behave as well? Anyone? Absolutely. I think that uh, uh, that has to be part of the education that I'm talking about that we need in our schools, that little boys need to be taught that girls are equal to them, maybe not in physical strength. And the same thing about our LGBTQ uh, community, that there is a third that there is a third gender that needs to be respected. This has got to be part of the curriculum. And I think mothers out there, mothers like my mother, my two brothers and I, my mother was an equal opportunity mother. My brothers had to wash dishes and make the beds and mop the floors and, and cook. And I never had. I like the way, I like the way you think of washing dishes as an opportunity for your brothers. That's great. Right. And that, I think it's up to mothers to, to teach, especially with, in our communities of color, because we have all these traditions that women are supposed to serve men. So we, we've got to really emphasize that because that also creates a lot of friction uh, among, especially in our immigrant families, you know, when they have these traditions that they bring from the old country uh, that that uh, the women are supposed to serve men and we have to say that to young women oh you don't have to do that and it's really sad that even today I have run into places where young a young woman who won a scholarship to the University of California Davis but her the family would not let her leave the family so we have to say to those young women it's okay to disobey your parents okay again don't be afraid to be different. Uh, uh, tricky territory, but yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. What mistakes have we made as women in terms of leadership or anything? Anybody think of some things we or other women have done wrong? Well, I, I can speak for that. Um, growing up with a very liberal mother who was an entrepreneur and had her own business and uh, I mentioned her before, uh, but when I went to work with the farm workers, I had to kind of roll back uh, some of my uh, my actions and uh, kind of change it. And then it got so bad that at some point then I had to say, uh oh, it's, this is wrong. I've got to start speaking uh, uh, up more for women. And, uh, and now I don't know how I could have changed that because my role was to organize farm workers uh, so that they could get out of the out of the oppressive conditions that they worked in. You know, I mean, it was so bad that women did not have toilets in the field. We can imagine right. how horrible that. There were a lot was. fewer choices at that point. So I had to kind of step into that more of a macho culture, uh, but then I had to figure out how to get how to break out of it, and which I did. You know. But it, it was, uh, and I don't know if it was a mistake or I just had to fit into it at that moment because I had to organize the people uh, into a union, you know, that we were organizing them into a union. And not well, it was, a different, it was a different challenge, obviously. And let, uh, let, me, let me make a little turn here. Um, 
I call this one mixing up the roles. Sally Ride was a scientist, but she was selected for NASA in part um, because of her great tennis career. And her hand-eye coordination uh, was very important uh, when she manipulated the robotic arm and when she did a number of other things. Also, it was her ability to work with a group. Um, she was a real team player. Her ability to handle both winning and losing and on and on and on. And um, we've talked about this a little. Um, uh, April, you talked about art as rounding yourself out. But, but talk about something that you do that has nothing to do with your career that you think makes you a better person and a better woman able to deal with the things you deal with. Can you think of something that, um, I think April with you, it's probably sports, right? Cause you've, Oh a yeah. Lot you are. Yeah. I could have paid you for that one. Cause you led right into it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I am an athlete and again, my mom said, you got to get the good grades if you're going to be out there playing sports. And so she did not take it quite as seriously, but it was really important to me. I, I'm a Tom girl, as they say, they, they say a tomboy, but I'm a Tom girl. And I really enjoyed hanging out with the fellas and I was very athletic. So I did all kinds of sports, um, basketball. And how has it made you a better aerospace engineer? So the teamwork, for sure. I say there's no I in team. I, I was a captain in basketball. Um, I also played flag football and football, football when I was young. And, and then I also did individual sports as well. So it's, it, it's important to sort of have that balance as well because you get a chance to kind of shine but also reflect. So things like track, you know, you're really about yourself, your performance, of course, there is the, the relay, but really working together with a team, but yet you still individual, which is kind of like tennis, right? So there is that aspect of tennis. I also learned concentration, working hard. I Everyone will tell you I am a practice player. Like I practice so much. Um, you know, I'm older. I'm actually the oldest on all of my teams, but yet I'm one of the best batters when it comes to softball. Um, may not run the bases quite as, as fast as I used to, but I also am able to see the big picture from playing on fields, from playing on a basketball court to kind of um, foresee. And I think that that has an advantage for me when I'm troubleshooting or envisioning um, potential risk on our spacecraft bills and on our teams and looking at people's personalities and how do they get along. All of those things, I think I learned in a, in a different world, in a sense, through sport. That's great. Um, Danielle, what about you? You have, a, you have an outside interest? I, you know, I would echo what April said about sports. I grew up playing sports and played in college um, and the teamwork and how to dig deep to get kind of your best out and, and where to sacrifice for the team. All of those have made a huge difference kind of in my career. I think now, though, it's probably the outreach that I do where I go talk to girls about math and science and how we make our movies. And it keeps me grounded and I think a really important way of of sort of what do you learn from them when you go talk to them? You know, their excitement about seeing what math and science can do um, and also how brilliant they are. Um, I think it's real easy as an older, as we get older in the generations to kind of put down younger generations. But they, 
a lot of those students are super dialed to things about the environment and they think all of the race stuff is ridiculous and they're like really they really get it in a very fundamental way um and that is very heartening <laughs> for where That's the country's great. going that is encouraging dolores i i don't know if you got you have so many interests you're involved in so many organizing things that that's probably all your passions. But is there another passion we don't know about that makes you really good at what you do? Well, um, I think music and dancing. I love music. I live by music. I try to uh, listen to live music as, as often as I can. And uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, uh, comedy, I think, is really important. Uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful movies uh, uh, that Pixar puts out are really important. And, you know, hanging out. And since, uh, you know, I, I do have uh, grown ch- adult children, um, you know, being able to be with my children. And then also seeing the results of the work that we do, the empowerment of, of grassroots leaders. You know, when you see uh, people who are immigrant women and they rise up to the level where they uh, get themselves elected to school boards and city councils and, and uh, see the leadership of, of the people that we that we grow i think that is what uh, fills fills my life but but music and dancing are very essential to me because when i get so exhausted i know if i can hear music especially live music it 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 totally fills me up that's great okay final round here um uh two things i'm going to ask you number one i want you to fantasize what if women ran the world what would change quick answer and then i want your advice to all these young women out there who are watching this and want to know how they can be part of that. Who wants to start off? If women ran the world, would we be a better, more compassionate place? Would we have more peace? What do you think? I'll say yes, that I think we would be more compassionate. I think that from a technology perspective, we'd probably look at uh, different solutions, really using more of the biochemist area. We see many women flocking to those areas. They see the impact almost immediately to the American population, well, to the to the world population, I should say, um, it, because you can change things with biotech. But I think that we would probably not, we would be more resourceful if we were using those industries versus sort of the hardware and mechanical engineering and manufacturing processes that we have now. I think it, it would really change the way we approach our problems. And your advice to that young woman out there watching this, how do I get there? With biochemistry or in general? In general. Hey, I I say study hard. You know, uh, pick your passion and find a mentor. You know, a mentor can help you to transverse that rocky road to getting there, or they can make it a lot easier and point out the easiest path to getting there as well. Thank you. Danielle? Uh, if women ran the world, uh, you'd, uh, this world can use more compassion. Certainly things would improve. Uh, we, I can all picture a lot of things that if there was more compassion, they wouldn't have happened. And advice to a young woman out there? I think two things. The first is, um, you know, I think for a long time, I thought uh, the things that made me scared were an indication that I was weak. And in fact, it was an indication that I was brave and I was challenging myself. And I think the other one is um, being different, um, trying to hide that I was gay for a long time. Like that felt very scary. Um, but in the end, that those differences are what you make you unique and stand out and become your strengths when you embrace them.
Embrace your differences. Dolores, if women ran the world. Well, number one, we would have no wars. Uh, women are better negotiators and uh, we would have more peace in the world. Uh, we would have more compassion, better education, uh, erase the ignorance that exists in our society uh, because women want their families to be safe, uh, better medical care, etc. And for young women, I want to say to them, uh, you have to find your voice, volunteer. This is an election year uh, that please uh, volunteer in an organization. Go out there, go knocking on doors getting people out to vote, even if you're a, a teenager. My kids uh, started passing leaflets from the time they were six and seven years old and, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, getting out there and, and uh, getting people to vote and, uh, you know, re- informing people about who the candidates are so we can get, uh, because once you find your voice, when you talk to strangers that you don't know and you're encouraging them uh, to vote, uh, to get involved, that that really gives you uh, what I call uh, emotional fortitude. Emotional fortitude makes you strong so that you can go out there and change the world. This is what we need to do. We have to make history. What wonderful advice from all of you. And I and I love this. The, uh, the focus, of course, is on all the young women. Um, uh, the other day I saw um, a new musical in New York City. I know Dolores has seen it as well. It's called SUFFS, S-U-F-F-S. It tells the story of the final push by the suffrage movement to win women the right to vote back in 1920. And it makes the point that the only thing that finally worked to turn around nearly a century and a half of male stubbornness was the combination of the old guard of the women Uh, the suffrage leaders who had gone slow and steady and gotten to that point, plus uh, the new generation of more militant young activists who demanded quick action. And the show quotes one of the young activists at the time, a nurse named Lavinia Dock, who said with both pride and anger, the young are at the gates. She meant it literally uh, as the young women picketed at the gates of the White House to change President Wilson's mind. So today, thank goodness, the young are at the gates again. Uh, I would also hope they would listen to what some of their elders, like these amazing women today, like all of us, are saying, because the advice is solid. It is based on experience. um, And we need all this wisdom if we're going to proceed. And we will proceed. Sally Ride used to say, reach for the stars. It's possible today, literally, more than ever. So thank you to all the panelists. Thanks to all of you who care enough to watch. Thanks to everyone who will continue to fight for a more equal and a more just society. See you next time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.